Hello and welcome to Obsession, where we get horribly obsessed, highly obsessed, <laughs> hilariously obsessed with things that other people might find odd. Nothing is too obscure, too creepy or too weird for us to research obsessively. I'm Heidi. And I'm Rebecca. Join us in being obsessed. <laughs> Hello, obsessives. Welcome back to the show. Hello, Heidi. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, obsessives. How has your day been, Heidi? Oh, pretty good, pretty relaxing. Just a bit of reading, a bit of drawing. That's a perfect day. Yeah. How about you? Pretty much the same, although I did do an awful lot of cleaning this morning. So mm. I'm really in the mood now to sit, relax and have a really good conversation, as we do, about one of our obsessions. And the obsessions that we're kind of ruminating on now are... Fairy tales. <laughs> and by fairy tales, we're not talking about Disney. No. We're not talking about stories for children no and they weren't originally stories for children at all no they weren't we are going to be taking it in turns over the next couple of weeks to tell a story the original version of a story that interests us and then we're going to talk about the very dark sometimes very scary often very adult origins mm. of that mm. story. Absolutely. So this week I'm starting us off. So sadly you're going to be hearing a lot of my voice. Next week you'll hear a lot of Becky's voice. So hang on. <laughs> <laughs> so this week I am going to be focusing on the very old story of Bluebeard. Bluebeard was, I actually didn't know it was Bluebeard as a child. I did actually have a fairy tale uh, book and I mm. did read this fairy tale, but it wasn't actually called Bluebeard. It was called something else, which I cannot remember for the life of me. But I remember being obsessed with it and chilled by it. Do you know what? It's not a story that's very well known anymore. No. And understandably so. It is a lot darker than a lot of other fairy tales. Yeah, and I can't see them making like a Disney Pixar movie out of it. No. <laughs> like they did with I, Rapunzel. But you know what? I said that about The Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> you know? And they found a way to do that. But they found a way to make it suitable for children. But no, it is a very adult fairy tale. And fairy tales in the beginning were adult entertainment. Yes. And even when people like the Grimm's brothers and Charles Perrault started writing them down for children, you've got to remember that the concept of childhood was very different back then. Mm. So this version of Bluebeard that I'm going to be reading is uh, taken from Charles Perrault, which he wrote down in 1697. And um, he recorded this story, uh, which was originally um, a story from the oral tradition 
we don't know how old this story actually is. Oh, it could be, yeah. Well, you know, there are a lot of story, Pandora's Box, Cupid and Psyche. You know, each story has its ancestors. Mm. Yeah. So I'm going to be kind of reading and kind of paraphrasing from the original Charles Perrault. Are you ready, Becky? I am absolutely ready. Are you comfortable there in story time corner? <laughs> I am. I even have cushions beside me. Oh, excellent. Do you have a nice cup of tea? I have Coca-Cola. Does that count? Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> All right. There was once a man who had fine houses, both in town and country, a deal of silver and gold plate, embroidered furniture and coaches gilded all over with gold. But this, this man was so unlucky as to have a blue beard, which made him so frightfully ugly that all the women and girls ran away from him. One of his neighbours, lady of quality, had two daughters who were perfect beauties. He desired of her one of them in marriage, leaving her choice which of the two she would bestow on him. Neither of them would have him. They sent him backwards and forwards, one to the other, not being able to bear the thoughts of marrying a man who had a blue beard. Adding to their disgust and aversion was the fact that he already had been married to several wives and nobody knew what had become of them. Bluebeard, to engage their affection, took them with their mother and three or four ladies of their acquaintance with other young people of the neighbourhood to one of his country houses where they stayed a whole week. The time was filled with parties, hunting, fishing, dancing, mirth and feasting. Nobody went to bed, but all passed rallying and joking with each other. In short, everything succeeded so well that the youngest daughter began to think that the man's beard was not so very blue after all and that he was a mighty civil gentleman. As soon as they returned home, the marriage was concluded. About a month afterwards, Bluebeard told his wife that he was obliged to take a country journey for six weeks at least, about affairs of very great consequence. He desired her to divert herself in his absence, to send for her friends and acquaintances, and to take them into the country if she pleased, and to make good cheer wherever she was. Here, said he, are the keys to the two great wardrobes wherein I have my best furniture, these are to my silver and gold plate, which is not every day in use. These open my strong boxes, which hold my money, both gold and silver. These are my caskets of jewels. And this is the master key to all my apartments. But as for this little one here, it is the key to the closet at the end of the great hall on the ground floor, Open them all. Go into each and every one of them except 
that little closet, which I forbid you, and forbid it in such a manner that if you happen to open it, you may expect my just anger and resentment. She promised to observe very exactly whatever he had ordered. Then he, after having embraced her, got into his coach and proceeded on his journey. Her neighbours and good friends did not wait to be sent for by the newly married lady. They were impatient to see all the rich furniture of her house and had not dared to come while her husband was there because of his blue beard, which frightened them. They ran all through the rooms, closets and wardrobes, which were all so fine and rich that they seemed to surpass one another. After that, they went up into the two great rooms which contained the best and richest furniture. They could not sufficiently admire the number and beauty of tapestry, beds, couches, cabinets, stands, tables, and looking glasses. Now the wife had not diverted herself looking upon all these things because of the impatience she had to go and open the closet on the ground floor. She was so much pressed by curiosity that without considering that it was very uncivil of her to leave her company, she went down a little back staircase and with such excessive haste, for she nearly fell and broke her neck. Having come to the closet door, she made a stop for some time, thinking about her husband's orders and considering what unhappiness might attend her if she were disobedient. But the temptation was so strong that she could not overcome it. She then took the little key and opened it, trembling. At first, she could not see anything plainly because the windows were shut. After some moments, she began to perceive that the floor was all covered over with clotted blood on which lay the bodies of several dead women oh. ranged against the wall. These were all the wives whom Bluebeard had married and murdered, one after another. She thought that she should have died for fear and the key which she pulled out of the lock fell out of her hand. After having somewhat recovered her surprise, she picked up the key, locked the door and went upstairs to her chamber to recover. But she could not, so much was she frightened. Having observed that the key to the closet was stained with blood, she tried two or three times to wipe it off but the blood would not come out. In vain did she wash it and even rub it with soap and sand. The blood still remained, for the key was magical and she could never make it quite clean. When the blood was gone, it came again on the other. Bluebeard returned from his journey the same evening, saying he had received letters upon the road informing him that the affair he went about had concluded to his advantage. His wife did all she could to convince him that she was extremely happy about his speedy return. The next morning, he asked her for the keys, which she gave him, but with such a trembling hand that he easily guessed what had happened. What, he said he, is not the key of my closet among the rest? 
I must, said she, have left it upstairs upon the table. Fail not, said Bluebeard, to bring it to me at once. After several goings backwards and forwards, she was forced to bring him the key. Bluebeard, after having very attentively considered it, said to his wife, Why is there blood upon the key? I do not know, cried the poor woman, paler than death. You do know, replied Bluebeard. I very well know you went into the closet, didn't you? Very well, madam, you shall go back and take your place among the ladies you saw there. Upon this, she threw herself at her husband's feet and begged his pardon with all the signs of true repentance, vowing that she would never more be disobedient. She would have melted a rock, so beautiful and sorrowful was he, was she, but Bluebeard had a heart harder than any rock. You must die, madam, said he, at once. Since I must die, answered she, give me some little time to say my prayers. I give you, said Bluebeard, half a quarter of an hour, but not one moment more. When she was alone, she called out to her sister and said to her, Sister Anne, go up, I beg you, to the top of the towers and look to see if my brothers are not coming. They promised me they would come today, and if you see them, give them a sign to make haste. Her sister Anne went up to the top of the tower, and the poor afflicted wife cried out from time to time, Anne, Sister Anne, do you see anyone coming? And Sister Anne said, I see nothing but a cloud of dust in the sun and the green, green grass. In the meanwhile, Bluebeard, holding a great sabre in his hand, cried out as loud as he could bawl to his wife, Come down instantly, or I shall come up to you. One moment longer, if you please, said his wife, and then cried out very softly, Anne, Sister Anne, do you see anybody coming? And Sister Anne answered, I see nothing but a cloud of dust in the sun and the green grass. Come down quickly, cried Bluebeard, or I will come up to you. I'm coming, answered his wife, and then she cried, Anne, Sister Anne, do you not see anyone coming? I see, said she, two horsemen, but they're still a great way off. God be praised, replied the poor woman joyfully. They are my brothers. I will make them a sign as well as I can for them to make haste. Then Bluebeard bawled out so loud that he made the whole house tremble. The distressed wife came down, threw herself at his feet, all in tears. This means nothing, said Bluebeard. You must die. Then taking hold of her hand with one hand and lifting up his sword with the other, he prepared to strike off her head. The poor lady, turning about to him and looking at him with drying eyes, desi desired him to afford her one little moment to recollect herself. No, no, said he, commend yourself to God, and was just ready to strike. At that very instant, there was such a loud knocking at the gate that Bluebeard made a sudden stop. The gate was open and two horsemen entered, Drawing their swords, they ran directly to Bluebeard. He knew them to be his wife's brothers, one a dragoon, the other a musketeer, so that he ran away immediately to save himself. 
But the two brothers pursued and overtook him before he could get to the steps of the porch. Then they ran their swords through his body and left him dead. The poor wife was almost as dead as the husband and had not strength enough to rise and welcome her brothers. Bluebeard had no heirs, so his wife became mistress of all his estate. She made use of one part of it to marry her sister Anne to a young gentleman and another part to buy captain's commissions for her brothers and the rest to marry herself to a very worthy gentleman who made her forget the ill time she had passed with Bluebeard. And that is the end of the story. <laughs> Beautifully read there, Heidi. Thank you, Becky. How about- <laughs> Wow, Heidi, I have not heard that for so long. Do you know what? It's a story that I had forgotten. Yeah? It is. I mean, there are a lot of other variants of that story. Uh, The Mm. Grimm's brothers wrote about Fitch's bird and the robber bridegroom, which are variants of the story. Yeah. And, of course, later on we had Charlotte Bronte writing Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre. Yes. Can you not see Mr. Rochester as a bit of a blue blue beard? No. Explain the correlation there. Well, he does have a wife. She's not. Oh, a... locked up. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. She's not a dead wife, but she is kind of the living dead, isn't she? No, but she does conveniently die later for them, though. And um... it's always convenient. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can see that the locking up. Yeah. And there's also um, The Bloody Chamber, which is a magnificent collection of stories by Angela Carter. And the title story is um, a feminist rewriting of Bluebeard. And it's the absolutely the most glorious writing. Although there is a feminist, I think, anyway, with the version you just read to us. Yeah. I like the fact that she sort of became um, uh, independent in the end and sorted out her sister's wedding and sorted out this. I kind of like that. Well, I really like it too. And, I mean, um, this story is one of those stories that usually have a moral about curiosity and usually (laughs) curiosity in women. But, But this one is a little different because the woman doesn't get punished. No, she gets rewarded. Um, so well done, Charles. Yes, well done. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that story was quite dark, but Becky, the original story is even darker. Yeah, the inspiration, the inspiration behind Bluebeard is even darker. Mm. There are a couple of people that have been reported to have been the real Bluebeard. And although this can't, you know, be historically verified, it's it's kind of interesting to think about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So one of the hot contenders to be <laughs> the true Bluebeard is a Frenchman by the names of Gilles de Ray. Did yeah. I sound sexy saying that? You may be, but I don't know if he was particularly a sexy man. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> but don't you love it when I, you know, try? try Gilles Duray. Yeah. Gilles Duray. Gilles Duray. 
Gilles de Rais, we get to practice a little bit tonight. We Gilles do. Rais. I mean, I think we have about two listeners from France at the moment and we're probably going to lose them. Yeah, once or, they, or once right now they're like looking at their, their phones language. going, really, <laughs> really? <laughs> so Gilles de Rais was born in 1405 to French nobility. He was to be the heir to a vast fortune and the ruler of his family's lands. He was given the best of everything, including education, and his precocious intelligence was very, very noted by the people who knew him. Mm. So um, his parents died when he was 11, and as he grew up, he became a celebrated soldier. And by the time the 100 years war between France and England broke out again in 1422. As it did. As it did. <laughs> many times, yeah. <laughs> as it did many times. Uh, Jules was celebrated as being a fearsome warrior. Yeah. And um, Becky, who yes. else is extremely famous for fighting in the 100 years war? Ah, we're going to go on to Joan of Arc here, I think. We are, yes. <laughs> so um, he didn't only fight with Joan of Arc or Jeanne d'Arc. He was sort of designated her. to be her protector. Yes, he was her mm -hmm. protector. He was her right-hand man. Yeah. He was the her one. Her Hamilton. He was the one who was tasked with watching over her during the battle. Yeah. He had a very good reputation by this point. He'd had a very successful childhood. He grew up with his grandfather in the end when his parents died. Yeah. And he was he was a hero. Yes. He was definitely a hero and a very well-regarded man with a lot of power. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. And he was present during every stage of Joan or Jean's remarkable military <laughs> career. And yeah. he was the commanding officer at the famous Siege of Orléans. Now, do you say Orleans or? Orléans. 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 Right. Our, our poor French listeners. We're, we're so sorry. We're sorry. Gonna... <laughs> we're just, just this entire, in the preparation for this podcast, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, we're just going to massacre French yeah. so badly. So apologies. We're bogans, basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too right, mate. <clears throat> and he also <laughs> rescued her more than once. So, yeah. you know, he sounds like a great guy, doesn't he? He was a good, well, yeah, for all intents and purposes, he was he, a good guy. He point. was a top bloke. Really, he was. Yeah. yeah. So, DeRay was also a big spender. He had loads and loads of money to spend. He was eccentric in his spending habits. And, in and a little bit Florence in his spending habits too. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And in 1433, he began construction of the Chapel of the Holy Innocents, an enormous and ornate cathedral, complete with permanent staff. Some of these staff members were boy choristers chosen by DeRay himself, and they would follow him everywhere. Like, think of Robert Palmer back in the 80s singing Simply Irresistible. You know how he always had those women following him around, those backing yeah. dancers? Yeah. That's how I imagine. <laughs> so um, 
something to know about that era. It wasn't unknown to build your own chapel. No, it wasn't at all. But this was extraordinarily um, extravagant and did not have the uh, blessing of the Catholic Church. Oh, no. No. And Duran caused a bit of upset. Clashes with the Catholic Church. It did indeed. Especially. When in time, um, he decided uh, to make himself his own priest of the church. He did. <laughs> he did. And a very... See, this is where I see him like a bit like Florence Foster Jenkins. Yeah. So he had a quite a prodigious childhood. Um, he was uh, a war hero. And I often think that in this period of his life, he still had to be extravagant, noticed, mm. um, bigger than everybody else and more important than anybody else. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, the fact that he had to have his own backing singers following him around, <laughs> that's just really interesting. He also poured massive amounts of money into his own theatre. Florence so, Foster yes. Jenkins, I'm telling you. It, yes, he is, <laughs> he is a Florence Foster Jenkins. And most of them was centred around his battle exploits with Joan of Arc. And some people are sympathetic and they say, well, he was missing his friend. No. No. And and do you know what? He wasn't actually present when she was burnt at the stake. So No. So I don't know. I don't know how much he actually cared about her. Mm. Yeah. I would say probably very little. I think he cared more about the glory. Yes. So uh, at the moment, you know what? He sounds like a harmless, rich, eccentric nobleman, doesn't he? Bit of a tosser, but not harmful. Yeah. Well, do you know what? Everybody thought that until local boys, noticeably boys who were sent with messages to DeRay's castle, started to disappear. Then it was noticed that wherever DeRay stayed, the same thing would happen. Children, both boys and girls, would go missing. Mm. He was also heavily rumoured to be involved in the occult and had attempted to summon a demon named Baron. (laughs) I know, we, we all thought of the same yeah, thing, didn't let's we? Let's not touch that. Let's not touch that. You know, we, we, yeah. So it was said that he offered the demon parts of a dismembered child but still had no luck. So there were all sorts of rumours, uh, you know, floating around. Now, just remember that at this time, he, of course, did have a feud going with the Catholic Church. So it might have been fake news. We don't know. And we'll never know. All right. So in 1440, DeRay was involved in the kidnapping of a cleric. And this led to a major investigation. So at this point, local peasants started stepping forward and talking about their missing children. So historians are divided on this. Yeah. Now, some say that he was the first recorded serial killer. 
And if he was the first recorded serial killer, he was one of the most prolific serial killers with around 140 deaths attributed to him, most of them children. Some say that um, he was threatened um, into torture, in, uh, threatened by torture into making false confessions. Yeah. Now, historians uh, just in the last 20, 30 years or so have really been making a case for Gilles de Ray and saying that he was not the first recorded serial killer. He's actually one of the most misunderstood and misjudged men in history. Yeah. And you know what, Becky, we'll never really know, will we? No, but I think there's also a middle ground we can explore there. Yes. Um, that, remember that nobles and powerful men right throughout history have done horrendous things. Yes. Because they had the privilege and ability to do so and no one much cared. No. Um, a very bloody time. Um, so it is possible that he did to some degree yeah. uh, commit these crimes. But the being out of favour with the church led to him actually being, you know, that was the reason why they persecuted him. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I tend to, they're, they're, if historians go one way or the other, I tend to sit more of a middle ground myself. I don't know about you, Heidi. Do you know what? There's a little bit of truth. Yeah, but do you know what? I, I think not. the truth is definitely there in the middle. Even if he had not done all of the outrageous things, all of the outrageous um, satanic child sacrifice things, yeah. he would definitely have done some terrible things because that's what rich noblemen did, as you say. Did, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So in uh, the biography by Jean Benetti, um, there are some, some descriptions of um, what his friends who were probably threatened with torture had to say yeah. about um, DeRay's behaviour. And uh, one of the quotes was, the boy, as in the victim, was pampered and dressed in better clothes than he had ever known. The evening began with a large meal and heavy drinking, particularly Hippocrates, which, was acted, which acted as a stimulant. The boy was then taken to an upper room to which only uh, Gilles and his immediate circle were admitted. There he was confronted with the true nature of his situation. The shock this produced on the boy was an initial source of pleasure for Gilles. So it's mm. quite horrific. Where I mean, of course it's horrific, but made even more so by the idea of these children actually being told what was going to happen to them. Mm. Yeah. Well, if, if you look at what we know about serial killers in our own age, mm. the thrill is in that level of sadism and um, that level of cruelty. Yes. So that, that lends probably a little bit more credence to the story. He does not sound like an exact match for Bluebeard. No, I've wondered but, about the correlation. But it is a thought that Gilles de Ray did have the nickname Bluebeard 
Um, whether this was because his beard was extremely black and shone blue or whether he had some kind of discoloration on his face or stubble, I don't know. But oh. apparently this was a nickname that he had. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think most people, when they read that story, um, knowing that he was an inspiration or a rumoured inspiration for Bluebeard, get a bit confused. Yeah. Because it's not about wives. It's about the serial serial killing of children. Mm. But there is another contender who is a bit closer. Okay. Now, this contender is called Connemar the Cursed. Connemar the Cursed was an early medieval ruler of Brittany who was thought to have lived around the 6th century. Now, um, look, in the true story of Connemar, he was definitely a killer. He um, was reported to have killed a couple of wives and his own son and, you know, people around him. So he was a brutal and vicious killer. Yeah. But it was the stories and the mythology that surrounded this person that is really very similar to Bluebeard. So in the myth, uh, he has a wife named Trephine and Trephine finds a secret room containing the relics of his deceased wives. Ah. And the ghosts of the wives warn her that Connemar will kill her if she becomes pregnant. And this is because of a prophecy that he will have a son that kills him. Oh, this rings a very vague bell. Ah. So he Tell ret- me more. So he returns um, from a battle or some kind of trip and she's pregnant. And the ghosts save her by taking her into a forest where she gives birth and then they hide the baby. So Connemar finds and beheads uh, Trephine. But... She's brought back to life by St. Gildas. And uh, Trephine is a saint in Brittany. So, you know, it could be the mythology around Connemar the Cursed. Yeah, that does sound like it draws an awful lot of parallels to the fairy tale, doesn't it? It does. It does. And, you know, people are now um, a bit more dismissive about... Gilles de Ray being the inspiration for the story, but how could we not tell that story with it? its connection? <laughs> its connection to Joan of Arc being best friends with the, mm. you know, a possible serial killer. I mean, that's mm. quite delicious, isn't it? Mm. It is. It, it is. is. <laughs> one, one of the things about fairy tales is that a great many of them, as well as children's rhymes, actually do come from parts of history yeah it, it, it's it's a segue from oral history yeah and and truly fascinating to consider i've always loved the history of fairy tales yeah thanks. and it's one of those subjects that i could 
you know, read about and talk about for a long time. Um, I remember being really obsessed with um, the essays of Marina Werner, who is um, a really, really good um, folklore academic. She wrote um, a great book called From the Beast to the Blonde, which is a really fantastic investigation of of fairy tales. Oh, I sound like I think I need to get hold of this book. I think you do. And she also wrote one called No Go the Bogeyman, which is an exploration of fear and why people are attracted to fear. Mm. So, yes, put those on your reading list, please. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So, Becky. Yes. Are you going to be telling us a story next week? I am going to be telling you a story next week. You'll have to wait. So we've both been exploring in the last two weeks our favourite childhood fairy tales and the meanings and the origins to them. And I'll introduce you to mine next week. And until then, it's a secret. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Like all good things, it's a secret. It is. I really enjoyed hearing that story again, Heidi. It's been a long time. Thank you, Becky. And I look forward to your fairy tale corner next week. Thank you, Obsessives. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook at Obsession. And Heidi, how can they leave us a review? Well, if they go to Google Podcasts, if they could leave us um, a lovely review in the box where it says leave a review or maybe leave us some stars, throw some stars in our direction. Yeah. Subscribe. We would really love that. And if you could um, tell any friends that might be interested in us, that, that would be really great too. 